Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 250. This program is dedicated in loving memory to Catherine Grossman, Golda Mindel Bas Sara, and Edward. Passed away this 10th of Adar Aleph by her daughter Karen and her husband Jeff Cohen. As always, we begin with a timely discussion. Living with the times, we're in the week, the beginning of the week of Parsha Vayakel, being that it's a leap year, so often many of the chapters that are usually read together, like Vayakel Pekude, are separated into two. So we read the chapter of Vayakel. It's also this coming Shabbos, the blessing of the new month of the second order. And it's also Pasha Shkolem, which is always either the Shabbos that blesses the month of other, uh, in this case, other Sheni, and or on Rishchidosh other if it's on a Shabbos. So we'll talk about these matters and their relevant message to us in our personal lives. Before we get into the discussion itself, I want to again announce that the judges are, are now sifting through all the essays that came in, the hundreds and hundreds of essays that came in from all over the world for this year's fifth annual My Life Chassidus Supplied Essay Contest, and I'll keep you posted as they're going. From the glance that I've had, it looks quite fascinating, quite interesting, intriguing, original, creative. So thank you for that, for this contribution in Afotza Samayanus Chutzel. Since, uh, since uh, I'm already making announcements, let's begin with the fact that My Life Chassidus Supplied is available online, all the archives, plus a form where to ask anonymous questions, at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, as well as the essays from previous years as they're posted week after week. We also depend on your support. This is a community-supported initiative, so please be generous. Dedicate a program in the memory of a loved one, in honor of a loved one. Go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. Okay, with that, let us go right into Vayakel, Shabbos Mubarakim, Odesheni, and Shkolim. Previous episodes where I discussed this were episodes 55, 105, 150, and 200. As I just shared, that's all available on our site. And when you go to the YouTube version of the video, you can see it's all timestamped, so you can go straight to the section that you're looking for and, and its discussion. So, Vayakel, the year Tavshin Nun Beis, 1992, still echoes in all our psyches. That is the week when the Rebbe had the stroke. That year was also Hashanah Muberes, and it was also Pasha Vayakel was the Shabbos before that. And that would be the last Fabringen, Vayakel, Tavshinun Beis, that the Rebbe would speak to us so far. And it was Vayakel. And the Rebbe emphasized the idea of Vayakel is Ahdus, especially when it does not come together with Pkude. And uh, he even edited a few short edits on the Rishima. The full-blown Sikha that the Rebbe edited, the last one, was the week before Pasha Kisiso, which I'll mention in a moment. But Vayakel was the last one the Rebbe delivered, and he did make a few edits. with the emphasis on Vayakel, unity, because Vayakel means to gather together. Now we know what the Rebbe said in Tavshin Chavov and uh, Yud Gimel Nissen, the birthday, the hundredth, the hundredth birthday of the Tzemach Tzedek. Uh, it was actually the hundredth, hundredth yardside of the Tzemach Tzedek. But uh, Yud Gimel Nissen is his, is his, um, is his yardside, the hundredth yardside. I'm sorry, the birthday is at Rosh Hashanah. So the Rebbe said then that the Tzemach Tzedek had said when he was asked how he could put himself in danger when he negotiates with, uh, with, uh, in, in precarious situations, he said two answers. He said, I'll answer in the Lashon of the Gemara with an Eboyesema, that I leave the children, and Eboyesema, that the unity of Chassidim will lead them to Mashiach. So immediately jumps out when you hear Vayakel, especially Vayakel Tavshinun Beis, which would be 27 years ago. And the Rebbe made that emphasis on unity, the Ahdus of Chassidim, the Ahdus of Eden, which of course makes sense because since the destruction of the Beis Hamidish was a result of divisiveness, sinas chinam, baseless hatred, 
So, of course, the tikkun, the repair of that, is baseless love, unity. So there you have the first Chassidus applied lesson of Ayakel, the emphasis on gathering together, on creating kehilis, coming together. Just the mere fact of coming together is already a powerful thing, as the Alta Rebbe says in Tanya, that that alone, that Shechina rests, on that alone is already a worthwhile unity. But especially if they also come together to learn something in Teda, to do a, to daven together, to do a mitzvah, to give charity, then it only excel, ex, ex, amplifies its power. So that's a lesson in unity, something that we have to continuously work on. Unfortunately, as the Rebbe said, put him tough shemem zayin, that for, for no apparent reason, there seems to be a challenge in this area of unity, of true avas and ardus yisrael. And Vayakel captures it all in that one word. So we can go into many discussions of what unity is. Hashem Echad, Chesidus explains about Ardus, creating the unity in a fragmented and scattered universe. But above all, it means unity among each other. To be able to not just coexist, but to understand we need each other, we complement each other, and get to a place, as he says in Tanya, chapter Lamed Beis, chapter Lev, chapter Love, where he talks about what love is, it's a it's in the language of the Tanya, that when we put we give priority to our soul over our body, that it's a unifying force. Because bodies divide, materialism divides, and spirituality connects. And when we learn Chsidis, which meant to connect to the Nishamas, and all Nishamas, as he continues on in that chapter, explaining how they're really kula masimis, and they're all avechad lukalona the different, different language that he uses, all focusing and emphasizing on the fact that they're all part of one larger organism. And we do not know who is the greater one. And we don't need to know that. But the fact is we all complement each other like musical notes, indispensable musical notes in a large composition. That's not an analogy in Tanya, but it's an analogy that works very beautifully to explain that idea. So Vayakil is the first thing to live with the time is to live with Agdus, with Kehila, and recognize that and make us an, a, an extra effort to stand in that way, especially that that was the last message to the Rebbe. His words to us that Shab is Vayakil Tovshin Nun Beis. Shkolim is a similar theme as we spoke last week. Maxis HaShekel, that the two halves, which can refer to two halves, two people, two Nishamas, and they unite and they become a shekel shalom, a shekel, a complete shekel, that we are all needed, we all need the other. And the second interpretation, the two halves, is the neshama and the ebishter, which we'll talk about more in the chassidus question at the end of this week's program. And of course, mevarchem chedish oder sheni. So oder, this year we have a double oder, it's not just quantity, but also quality. Oder mishanichnas oder marben besimchem. When we enter into other, we increase in joy. And when we have two others, we have the 30, we have each day, Mylan Bekadesh, we increase. And then you have another a total of 59 days. So imagine the amount of joy. And joy is a unifying force. That's why it says the mitzvah of Hachnosus Archim is specifically on Yomtev. It also spills over on Shabbos, but primarily on Yomtev. Why? Because Ein Simchis Kresi, Simcha cannot be done alone. You can sit alone and learn, and there's no one else around. Simcha is celebrated with others. That's why we have a simcha. We invite friends, we invite guests, we invite people, even strangers. Chassidus talks about how the melech is, treats everyone equally and in that type of sense, because simcha is a unifier. As he explains in the Maimah Samach Tasamach, Toflesh Nun Zayin, the Maimah that the Rebbe Rashab said, the wedding of the Friedrich Rebbe, explaining at length how simcha transcends boundaries and therefore transcends the differences between us. It's a unifier when people dance and celebrate together. So all the theme is unity, unity, unity. It's unity that is the greatest strength and that's why there's the greatest challenge in that area. There's only one way to do it. Be deliberate, be vigilant and never allow in your own home, especially around the table with your children, any type of Lashon Hara, God forbid, any type of language that is any way divisive, negative, that feeds any type of element that can separate us. Always focusing how each one of us has a quality that we can learn from, a quality that complements us, a quality that the Ibishta wants in this world.
Everybody has that. And we have to focus on that and emphasize that. We may have differences of opinion. So in day saying Shavas, people have differences of opinion. That doesn't mean that love has to be compromised. It doesn't have to be personalized. And it doesn't have to separate us. It's two opinions. On the contrary, each opinion enriches the other opinion. Because when you weigh the opinions and you count them one and you, um, and you direct them one against the other, you get out a better idea. You get a clearer picture. So opinions actually can end up being resulting in a far greater unity. That's why we say Yem Echad, Yem Sheni, Yem Shlishi. So Yem Echad reigned Ardus. God was alone in the universe. There was nothing, no duality. In day two, there's a duality. That's why it doesn't say Kitev. Every day it says Vayaralikim. God saw and, and he said it was good. Why can't you say it's good? Because duality has the potential to lead to discord and divisiveness and war. Machlekes. Day three is the reconciliation. Hakosav Ashlishi, the third verse, as we say every morning, comes, the Machriya Beinayim, mediates and reconciles between the two, and you get even a deeper understanding of the idea. So three is even greater than one, because one, there's no other option. You have one opinion. Two has the possibility for being a, um, a, a conflict. And number three is the reconcile to Feris, the Kava Emtsoi that goes all the way up, Mavriach Minakotza Lakotza, goes to the highest, to the lowest, because he unites in all, Midas HaEmes, the mid of Emes of truth, that true Aleph Mem Sov, the three letters of Emes, true from the beginning, through the middle, through the end. Sheker is the letter Shin Kuf Reish, there are three letters all the way, the end of the alphabet, because Sheker ain't like line. Falsities doesn't have any legs to stand on, so they hang out together. Because one line needs another line to support it. Emes spreads out from the first letter, Aleph, Mem, the middle letter, the 11th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and Tof, Sof, the 22nd letter, because Emes is, exists, Emes is throughout. If it's Emes in only one area, it's not completely true. Emes means <clears throat> that the Emes, from the beginning, through the middle, through the end, that's Emes. So that is connected to Agdus and unity, the theme that we're discussing now, and joy. Of course, coming to Purim, Later in this month, Purim is also its central theme, is Agdus. That's why the mitzvahs are connected to Agdus. They're also the word Kehila, the boy Nikolo al Yehudim. They gather together. A number of places mentions gathering together. Why? Because, because Haman had said, <coughs> excuse me, Haman said to Cheshvedish when he wanted to instigate for the Grachman al-Islam, the total genocide of the Jewish people, that Yeshna Amechad. There's one nation, but Mufuzerim is Mufuzerim of They're spread out and Mufurit, Pirut, between the nations. So we focus on the Amechad by uniting together, and that gives us the strength to overcome any challenge, as the Purim miracle um, was witnessed to. So now that we've gone with that, let's go into some questions, some new questions, some interesting questions, some controversial ones. And we, here we go. Saying Hamapil. Can we speak after saying the bedtime Hamapil prayer? Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. This question that I'm writing about is a very personal question that has been on my mind since I got married. Since I got married, and I never asked anyone due to being shy or due to its sensitivity. I was brought up always knowing that before you go to sleep, you say Hamapil. Hamapil, of course, the last prayer in Shema. And once you say it, you are not supposed to speak, talk. I've learned about the importance of saying this blessing and the beautiful meaning of its words. Once I got married, I stopped saying it because when you lay in bed, you speak, etc. And you're not permitted to say a blessing at the point when you're ready to fall asleep. Being that chassidus is meant to be part of your lifestyle throughout the whole day, and especially when you go to sleep, can you please provide insight into this? Thank you. So yes, Hamapil said, and the custom is that afterwards you don't speak. However, we have in Sifri Halach, and I'll quote a few sources, that if, for example, even after someone says Shema, even after somebody says um, Hamapil, it says, poskim, there's a poskim say that if a person has a particular need, He's, for example, gets very thirsty or hungry. 
Or in a case where somebody asked a question, there's an emergency situation and someone may call you, you're allowed to, you're allowed to speak afterwards as well. Some say you should say Shema again. Now the reason for this is because in Poskim there's two opinions on Amapil. Why are you saying it? Are you saying it about yourself? That you are not playing to God, that you're, God is taking your soul and therefore taking your speech and you're now finishing your day? And therefore it applies to you? Or is it talking about not the individual of the person, but in the general world, that the world is going into a slumber? So of course, if it's the second, then it's not so much about you saying, I will not speak. It's more about the world in general, and the world is going to sleep. And that's what you acknowledged. So therefore, there is a difference of opinion of how, uh, how severe, how machmir are they about this hefzik, whether it's saying after Amapil. Um, here are some sources. El Yor Rabbe Simen Kuflam Aral of Sivkot and Gimel. It's 131.3. Mokr Chaim and Kitz is the Yavitz and his Siddur. The Beard Hagra and Soft Simen Toflam and Beis. And many more. In the Mishnah Bruder, he talks about it as well. And he says you should say Shema again if you need to be Mafsik. And he brings other sources. For all practical purposes, let's say this. And this, of course, is being said in the proper uh, modesty necessary. The husband and wife are together, especially if it's a mitzvah to be together, obviously um, that, that, that it takes priority over everything. When do you say Shema? You could say it beforehand. You could say it afterwards. But there's a chance that people will fall asleep before, afterwards. So the connection of husband and wife, and they may be speaking, obviously is number one. So either you say the Amapil earlier, and it's better to say the Amapil afterwards, obviously. If you say it earlier, that would probably go into a category where you could take a break, or maybe you don't have to speak afterwards. So that is a matter of the discretion of each individual. I don't know if there's a clear black and white halacha around it. But overall, the key point is to remember that you're acknowledging by not speaking that you're returning to Hashem, you're returning your spirit to God for protection. And no matter how you learn the Hamapel, whether it's on you as an individual or the world, that's the main thing to remember. If there are circumstances, we see clearly Poskim say that you could, take a, you could speak afterwards. And some say you say Shema afterwards. As always, these type of questions should be addressed to our Rav if you have something specific, because I'm talking the general concept here without the specific details. And Arov can give you a more clear directive, which is always what's necessary in this context. Okay. As far as Chassidus applied in regard to this, look, speech is we're called a medaber. A human being is a medaber. Why are we called a medaber? Because medaber, dibur, captures the essence of we, what human beings are, the ability to speak to another person. Why are we called a maskil? even though seichel is also our unique quality, but dibur is not just you have intelligence, but you have the ability to transcend yourself, as the Rebbe explains in a number of places, and speak to another. Speech and communication is what allows us to be really the social entity that we are, the ability to have relationships, the ability to marry, and all that comes with it. So in a sense, when we are saying goodbye to the day, saying shema, we say also goodbye to our speech. And our speech goes into a world of machshaveh, just like Chassidus speaks about Elam HaMachshove and Elam HaDibur, and the Dibur is Elam HaMachshove, and you don't go back down to Dibur until later. So, but obviously, there are circumstances, extenuating circumstances, where one can do that, with all the proper qualifications that I mentioned before. Okay, next question, Shiduchim. What am I supposed to do when nothing seems to work? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. My question is, is what are we supposed to do when nothing seems to work? I've been in Shaduchim for many years now, tried everything. Honestly, I'm a great catch. Nothing wrong with me. I have the full package. I don't understand what takes so long. I'm slowly getting to the point of fully giving up. It's starting to feel unreal as it might never happen. Okay. Now, we've addressed this topic a number of times. First of all, general hopelessness versus hope, and specifically around Shaduchim. 
So first of all, from a point of view of Teir and Chassidus, giving up is not an option. The Abish sent every person to this world and sent a soulmate for you. There's someone there for you. And you have to always know that betachem, trust, is always necessary. Even if it's, you're worn out, even if you feel beat up, even if you feel disappointed and frustrated, you never give up. You're not giving up on yourself. And you don't give up on God who, get, who put you here and gave you all the faculties necessary. It's sometimes hard to hold on yourself. That's why you need to have good friends and a good mashpia or rav and mentor that helps keeping you upbeat. The last thing you want to do is hang around with friends that have the same attitude and then misery loves company and you just reinforce these negative attitudes. Surround yourself with positive people. We're now in the month of Odr. Body mazli, it's a mazl, it's a healthy mazl freedom. It's a time of simchas and simcha. And every soul, by virtue of its being, connected to the divine, is, that alone is the greatest simcha. You have life, you have health, you say you're the full package, so it's a blessing that God gave you. Sometimes, a person in fetters can't always free themselves, so you need to speak to people who help lift you up. You connect to Abim, to the Rebbe, to the Rebbe's Inyanim, to the Rebbe's work, to Chassidus, to Teira, you don't fall below. Same thing with friends, Chaveirim, Chaveris, same thing with Arav, Mashpia. In addition, these are people who can help you sometimes see blind spots. I know you say you feel you've done everything right, but the fact of the matter is we are never able to judge ourselves. There may be something you're not doing right. And I don't, it doesn't matter how many times you've tried. You need to have a fresh set of eyes, a fresh air, to look at it anew. And do it in a pace that does not make you overwhelmed. But to ask me this question, in any way, I would agree, to hopeless would be to me a disgrace to what the Rebbe taught us, which is there's never such a thing as hopeless. There's always keiches, no matter what your situation you're in, God gives you the strength to deal with that circumstance, circumstances. So therefore, that is, has to be our approach. Bring in a new person. Consult another individual. Find out what may be something else that can be done. Do not give up hope. At the same time, don't be desperate. I would not sit all day and agonize over this. Work, teach, learn. Do things that feed your spirit, that feed your optimism, that feed your confidence in your own skills and faculties and resources. And live a happy life. Live a good life. Remember, positivity brings positivity. Nobody wants to meet someone on a date and see on their face or in their body language that they're depressed or demoralized by this. So it's critical that simcha will lead you to find what you need to find. Some people say, if I find what I find, then I'll be besimcha. It works the other way around. Be besimcha and you'll find what you need to find. Because joy is a healthy force. Joy is connected to gratitude, appreciation, seeing your blessings and recognizing them, and so on. Okay. Next question. What should be our attitude to the recent mic drop issue? Yeah. I often try to avoid and want to avoid some of these controversial discussions However, once you get enough questions, it becomes very difficult because I made the promise to myself and to you and for the cause to address issues even if they're not always something I want to address um, because it's part, it's on the part of the, the dialogue out there and there's a lot of confusion and so on, so I'll try to weigh in. I don't just want to be another voice among the fray, so I'll try to approach it as always from a Tehidah Chassidish approach and how the Rebbe would address it as best to my ability. <clears throat> so here's a few questions that came in, just a few of many. Hide up Simon. I know you say you're not a Rav, but please make one exception, because we need someone like you who knows psychology, chassidus, hashkofa, gemore, mic drop, what, and what mic drop is. Do you need a mechitza? Can women speak for men? Why is JLI retreat different? They have women speakers, as well as many Chabad houses. You are very well-rounded and get it, quote-unquote. It's not good that we have, he says, do not mention any names, different people speaking to rabbis, 
with a doctor, with a mashpia. We need one person who gets halacha and people and the human psyche. That's one person writes. Another person writes, since Rabbonin prohibited the women's mic drop events and the owner of a certain website ignored the prohibition, what is your take on this? I know you, you use this website to showcase your program, this program, so please enlighten us. Okay. And other such questions. So yes, many people have weighed in. There are some Rabbonim that have written something about the mic drop. We know that different, different psychologists and different professionals and different lay people have written up their own thoughts and shared their thoughts. So I am not another voice among them. I'm not coming another opinion. I want to step back and look at it from a very objective perspective as we should look at everything. So we know in every area of Torah, in every area of life, I should say, we have a Torah that guides and directs us what to do. That's the premise, the axiom that we all begin with. In this case, we also have chassidus, amidus chassidus, and the heiros and directives of the rabbeim, which, of course, are all based on Torah, but it adds also the chassidus dimension, the primizdika dimension, the fnimishur sadin, beyond the letter of the law, etc., etc. Okay. So whenever we have a situation, what is the Torah's approach? We have to look, what are we talking about? What is the, what is the, what is the chefzeh? What is the entity about? What is the, whether it's a question about something is kosher, a food is kosher, or a question whether a situation is kosher, or a mic drop is acceptable according to Teda. You have to study what it is. You can't just, by hearsay, to know what are we talking about, and then say, what does the Teda say about this and this matter? Now, I would add another element here. There are things that in the Teda is black and white allowed, well, there are things that are a mitzvah to do. There are things that are allowed to do. There are things that are prohibited to do. And then there's rishus, allowed. Which means there's no prohibition. It's something that people make by discretion, which frankly covers a lot more of life than the first two, which is a mitzvah or a prohibition and a veda. One more point, that when Rabbonim paskin on something, and Rabbonim look at something, the general guideline is obviously to follow the teda, but also you'll find sometimes more than sometimes in history, that Rabbonim will avoid necessarily saying a clear black and white psak. Why? Not because they may not have nothing to say in it, because sometimes it's exeda, something that everyone's doing. So exeda shiev shalamet be rabim, that many people cannot stop from doing. Like the Rebbe avoided giving out a isr, a prohibition on smoking. Even though there's enough doctors that say it's, health, it's dangerous to your health, and there's a mitzvah of a neshmat made sechem, the Rebbe said he doesn't want to come out that way because so many people may not be able to live up to it. So he made clear his opinion, but does, goes a step, a step away from saying it's prohibited. This too is part of the discretion in any type of judgment call when you're looking at something. <clears throat> Some things you can give advice and not necessarily give up sakh. Now, I'm not telling Rabbonim what to do. It's not my role. Every Rav has his achrais. I'm just trying to put it in the context of the whole picture when you look at the situation. So now we take the mic drop, which is a commercial enterprise. It's not a charity service. It's a commercial enterprise that charges the people that speak, that also encourages, and some say even more, pushes them to sell tickets. And I'll soon read another two questions on this topic. And what its role is that a person should get up and speak, and they consider it, they, or they encourage it because they say it's healthy for you to break the silence, to speak about your life, about yourself. Some consider it therapeutic. So here is a few thoughts on that. And again, not a conclusive statement, but just looking at all the angles. So here's two more letters I received, one pro, one against. One said, it was very freeing for me to do the mic drop, I was able to express myself. I have not spoken in public. This helped me get beyond my shyness and develop courage, which I feel is going to help me in many areas of my life. I spoke about this with my therapist before I did the mic drop, and she encouraged it. Okay. Another writer writes, exact opposite. I first considered it, but then I saw that there was this pressure being placed on me to sign up and to bring tickets, I started feeling too commercial, too, too much being used. I reviewed it with my professionals, and they said, you know, if you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. 
So as soon as something is, let's talk from a Hatayra point of view, as soon as something is commercial and there's business involved, so we know there's millions of businesses that are Maso Matam Bamuna and Dal Nasham Shamayim, very good. But we always know when it comes to business, one of the first things is a Negei Bedova. Why do you need a Mashgiach, for example, in a restaurant? Someone that's overseeing the kashrus and not in the kitchen of your mother or of your wife or of someone that is a trusted Yiddish Why do you need a mashgiach? Because there's no business involved. And a woman is trusted. She's a b'cheskes kashrus. She's trusted. In a business, they can cut corners to save money, to make more money. And you don't know. And you don't know who's in the kitchen. So you need a mashgiach. Whenever there's business, there's a negiva dover. A negiva dover does not mean necessarily that the person is, is doing something bad. But you can't just trust and say, you know what, whatever they're doing is great. Because they have an agenda. And even if the agenda is not a bad one, you have to look at it. So a tater person has to look, what is that agenda? How is it bearing on the issue? And is something wrong being done here? I'm not going to make the statement that something's wrong being done. Because what that leads me next is, okay, so is this an issue of speaking in public before women, before men? So then you have to really be consistent because there are many events, unfortunately or fortunately, that are being done not by mic drop, by others, where a woman stands up and speaks before men. And there's also mixed seating. So if you want to be consistent, if that's an issue, then that has to be addressed across the board. Are Rabonim ready to come out against any type of place where men and women sit together? We're not talking about davening or a wedding or a mitzvah, a simchas shal mitzvah or a sudas mitzvah and so on. <clears throat> if they're ready to do that, by all means, but people are going to ask, be consistent in that regard. As far as the issue of being vulnerable and opening up in a personal way, which of course touches on issues of modesty and sneers, yes, that's a good question. But remember, there are um, therapists that people go to who open up to them. So it's true, it's not in public. So, and here comes another issue, which is, is it healthy for a person to do this? Not everybody's ready for it. Some people need support. So just to encourage them, because there's a business angle to it, is it being done with the proper care and the proper oversight? So taking all this into account, obviously, this needs to be looked at closely. This needs to be looked at in this context. It needs to be looked at from the professional point of view. Is this a healthy thing for people to be doing? And as far as the Tzniya's point of view, um, if you want to follow halacha in this type of regard, then yes, any person who follows laws of modesty will be careful what they say in public and what they say also about speaking about parents and other things that may have negative connotations or more than connotations. But remember, in 12-step programs and in other places that are healing, there's also a very open talk. It's true, it's not a public forum, it's not broadcast, but still it's in front of some other people. So my point being here is that all these needs to be weighed, number one, what the professionals say, what is the healing element in it, is it really accurate so, is it not being tainted by business um, agendas, what does the tater say about the whole thing? Now, being that Rabbanim did weigh in on this, I am not here to negate what they're saying, it's not at all my position, I respect Rabbanim, and Rabbanim come out, we all have ability to ask Mehechen Dantuni, what their sources are, what their precedent is, and that's something that should be part of the discussion, so, but since I'm being asked to weigh in, I'm weighing in, and the tater, at the end of the day has to look at it in that way. I'm convinced that if somebody came to the Rebbe, the Rebbe would say, send them to Rabbonim, and exactly this way, the Rabbonim should look at what it is. The last thing you want is, uh, is a psak or a rav should give an opinion, and they don't really know what the cheft is, what the entity is. Because then later they'll be, they'll be uh, dismissed and saying, oh, you don't even know what it is. First observe it. That's why there's a need for a chikir vidrisha, which is research, discovery, birur hadvarim, clarification from all parties involved. Now, I do see that it's an evolving process. I see some of the people involved in the entity are reaching out to Rabbonim. I'm not sure what's going on behind the scenes. Hopefully, they can talk about it in a way where the Rabbonim really get an understanding, an intimate understanding of what we're dealing with here. And raise their concerns that they have, and if there's ways to do this in a way that the Rabbani will feel comfortable. That's really what I wanted to say in context. To me, the issue is not the mic drop. The issue is how we look at every challenging situation. Now, you know, people go to therapy. Therapy is some of the secular therapists. Some are not always Torah-based therapists. Though we encourage people to go to Torah-based, but sometimes a professional is needed, and there's particular expertise in that particular field. So that's why it's important to have a mashpi'in arov, 
that you can review what the therapist is suggesting. They can talk to the therapist and make sure that it's done in a teledica way. But always when you deal with matters of the soul and matters of emotions and psychology, there's always very thin lines of what is acceptable, what is not. And yes, there are times when people who've been truly violated, you can say, just keep it quiet or because it sneers. But they may need to heal. They may need to speak to someone. You're going to say because it's sneers reason they shouldn't speak to someone? Now, what happens if some professionals feel with the right guidance, it's good for them to speak in public? Who are we to judge that? That's why Taylor looks at Arefah, and has to look at it. Now, if some Rabbanim feel that it's inappropriate, let them talk to the therapist and let them discuss it until it becomes, until it becomes clear. I think the engagement of this discussion is the key. This idea where people get polarized and everyone becomes personalized. And this one, in the one extreme and then the other extreme, takes away the whole integrity of what Tata does. Tata wants to depersonalize. Tata wants to look at something with objective eyes, with a perspective that is not tainted, not by this party, not by this party, not by hysteria, not by uh, business agendas and other agendas. Clarifies who's in the gay badaver, who's subjective, who's gaining something from this, who's not, and comes away with a, a credible um, and, um, and legitimate and honest and accurate tailored ruling on it, or maybe not have a ruling, maybe saying, this is going on, maybe I don't have to always rule, maybe rule case by case if someone comes to me. Because another thing is jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is very easy today for people to say, okay, I'll dismiss these rabbonim, I'll go to, I'll go to a different city. If you want the rabbonim to have credible authority, it has to also be addressed in that fashion. Meaning, take into account that you don't want people running around, they want, running from one to the other, that there should be some cooperative discussion so there can be a consensus. And often the time, time comes that we don't necessarily have to make a full ruling. It can be certain things you point out, and rather than just jumping to any type of conclusive statement, because the fact of the matter is some may not listen, and then what have you achieved? You just create a situation where some people will listen to these Rabbanim, some may not. And some will, the, the people with the other side of agenda will dismiss these Rabbanim and even, and even ridicule them, which I'm not at all supporting. But you have to also be wise and create a situation where you really want a constructive conclusion. Not just the pitting of, of the, 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 the butting of heads against each other and the pitting of sides and just turn this into a collision course where people just end up being either confused or not listening or just doing whatever they want. And I think that's where we need a, we need a very healthy environment for discussion about this matter and about all matters. It's the only way things will be done if it's effective. Like they always say, don't boycott something that you're not going to win. Just say, why not? If it's wrong, it's wrong. So if it's a Isa Daraisa and Aveda Zara, I understand. But even then, you want to be effective. So I wouldn't compromise, but you have to know how to say it, not just what to say. And in general, that's the best approach of all. You have to know how to say it in a way that people can listen and say, you know what, there's a point, I'm going to correct. Or else you're basically forcing people to get out of the realm of Allah and they'll say, you know what, they don't, they don't get what's going on, they're out of touch, and I'm just going to do whatever I want, which I'm not in any way, of course, condoning, but we have to be wise, especially those that know more need to be the ones that think for everybody, think for more than one person, because they're the ones that are supposed to show direction and guidance, and that's, of course, Rabbonim, Mashpim, Shluchim, people who have the perspective of the Rebbe, of Teirah, Chassidus, that can then enlighten the rest of us. So I welcome more comments, and that's my initial take on this. Let's move to the next question. Choices. How do I know if I'm making the right choice? We're faced with multiple decisions every day from what to wear to where to go and what to do. It has come to a point in my life where I'm unable to make any decision because I'm unsure what is in alignment with my purpose. How do you know if you're making the right choice? Thanks. Okay, that's a very good segue from what I just said. How many times has the Rebbe said, it's etched in my mind and my spirit, these words? So many times the Rebbe opened up a sikh, especially to women, to children, sometimes at Fabrengen. Teireh is called Teireh Eir, a Teireh of light, Teireh's chesed, a Teireh of kindness. Ahirah, Teireh from the word Heirah, Ahirah Bachayim. It shines a light on the dark world around us, which were issues and events and interactions are shrouded in darkness. Think of a dark road. 
You're arriving on a dark road. You need two things. You need a map and you need a headlights. So Teira is both a blueprint and headlights. The blueprint tells you what to do. This is the road to go on. This is the road not to go on. And when this road, here's the way to go. It gives us a path. So this question of choices is first and foremost answered by that. We live in a dark world. As the Ketera says, right after the Darkness filled all of existence. And And then he goes on and says, God said, let there be light. And says, what's light? Light is teter, teter er. Light is the kav, if you're going to go with chesidus and kabbalah. The light, the light that entered into the tzimtzum, which is everything is dark. So we enter into a world where without guidance, we don't know what's right, what's wrong. Where's the guidance come from? In early age, it comes from parents, later from educators, then from our ability, who teach us the teter, and then from our ability to access that teter as we were trained to do. Every situation has a Torah air directive. Everything. A to Z, there's nothing in life. Because just like an engineer builds a machine, there's not one iota or fiber of the machine that's not guided by his blueprint. God, who's the ultimate cosmic engineer, created, created a world by, like an architect, as the Medrash says, is taco baraiso alma. Not just he created a Torah afterwards. He looked into the Torah, into the blueprint, and, and, there, and thereby, and with that, he created the world. So every detail in existence has a teira and an illuminating one of that that illuminates exactly that. How do I make a choice and a decision? So the things the teira says, here's what you're supposed to do, here's what you're not supposed to do. But remember, there's a whole body of teira that says rishus. You look in Tanya, he speaks about klipas nega in chapters four, uh, six <clears throat> and then seven. He speaks about klipas nega and then klipas He says, what's klipas nega? Klipas nega is a mix of good and bad, meaning it's a shus. You eat a meal, a kosher meal. It's a shus, but you can eat it self-indulgently, you can eat it neutrally, or you can eat it by using the strength for something positive. And that's our choice. That too is a directive in Teda. To sanctify yourself even in the things that you're permitted to do. So there's a whole body of rishus. We walk, we talk, we sleep, we eat, we drink, we do business. And there's Torah guidelines, how that should be done. Kol masecha, yiu l'shem shamayim, all your actions should be done for the sake of heaven. And then you have, kol all your ways you know God. And then there's the mitzvahs, the things you must do, the things you're not allowed to do. Things that are mutter, means they're permissible. That means that you're able to release the spark, is mutter, it's releasable from the entity, from the item. Or osr b'yideach is iser, it means it's bound and it's, not, it's off limits, you're not supposed to touch it. That's how we make choices. Now, someone will say, how do I know what the Torah says? That's why we have teachers. That's why I say l'charav. I have a mashpia. have a kene l'charchover. Have people who help you when you need to make a choice. What sounds like to me, what you're saying is you should sit down with somebody you trust, someone that has seasoning and experience, knows Torah and chassidus, looks at your life and says, tell me what your questions are. Remember, there may also be a factor of lack of confidence or a lack of inner security due to being invalidated on other reasons. I'm not going to go and analyze because I don't know the details. That may also make you second-guess yourself and not allow yourself to just make a move and make a choice. So having support and friends that help train you and give you the confidence to make a move and have confidence that this is the right move based on Teir illuminating, guiding light, that is the way to get beyond the paralysis of no choice and indecisiveness and being trapped. Okay. The next question. Can Jews curse? Is one allowed to curse another person? Hi. Is it possible for one Jew to curse another Jew? God forbid I have to add. Can a parent curse a child? Can an in-law curse an in-law son or daughter? If one is experiencing hardship, is there room to think that perhaps one is cursed? Thank you. So let's make a state unequivocally. You have an Issa that Issa according to all the opinions, is the callous to curse somebody. And it's built on a few psukim. Well, I'll mention a few. In Mishpatim, Chavbez Chavzayin, 22-27, it says not to curse God, Elikim. The Targum says there, 
Targum is Elikim is judges. Meaning Dayon, people. So you see that it applies to people. You have the Pasuk in Kedeshim, you test your Dalet. Same Pasuk, before a blind person you shall not create an obstacle. So before that it says, you shouldn't curse a deaf person. The Tedas Kenim, on the Pasuk, which is the Medrash, the Medrash, the Tedas Kenim, the Medrash on Vayikra, says that this includes all people. And this is brought in Rambam, in Hilchas Sanhedrin, Pedic chapter 26, in Shulchan Arachesh Mishpat Simen Chavzayin. Look also in Tmura Gimel Beis, that also discusses it a bit. So it's very clear, it does not just mean a, bl- a deaf person. There they explain, so why does the Torah say Daka, a deaf, a deaf person? So there's different reasons, which I'll talk about in a moment. We also have, of course, a clear Aveda to curse, not to curse parents. That's Mishpatim Chafal of 2117. And then there's even a din not to curse yourself, oneself. It's based on the Gemara in Shavuos 31a. And the Rambam and Shulchan Aruch that I just mentioned all cite that. Now, among the reasons why, the Chinuch says in uh, Mitzvah, Reish Lamed Aleph, that a curse, when you curse someone, not just your actions, but the Torah is also telling us your words have an effect on a person. So we're careful not to have bad speech on somebody. Now, this is, this is actually in contrast to some philosophers who feel that no, only your actions can have some, not your words. So the Rakanti in the Vayikra also holds like that, that actually affect the Rajba, the, the Reish is a Pez Vov, which is 286, the name of the Ramban also holds that. There is another opinion which we'll get to in a moment. So even your words, this reminds us, of course, of Lashon Hara, the word in Yem Yem, that it kills not just the speaker, and the listener, but also the person you're speaking about. It hurts them, because speech has an effect. We spoke about it, by the way, in episode 120, 127. Now, the Rambam, the Rambam, is the mere fact that you have ill feelings of vengeance and anger, that's the problem. So it's not so much about the effect on the person that you may frighten them or you may intimidate them or so on, but it's also that your reaction, the way your, your curse is coming from something that's from a negative energy that you should not be having. And in this case, some say that the Rambam holds that's not because speech has an impact on the person, but it's more because it has impact on you that you're cursing because it's coming from those negative feelings. I'll give you a few more sources. There's a Pirish and a Barbanel on Bereshis 27a, and Bamidbar 22.7, and Moshe Chochman and Bamidbar 22.20. So this covers the topic to some extent, and obviously cursing is never appropriate. There are discussions, can you curse a Russia or someone that is completely abrogated, someone a real criminal, but that's not for now. That's, uh, that's exceptions, if anything, and I'd rather not go into that right now. Okay. Let's do some follow-up. We're going to do a few follow-up. There's three follow-up from last, from last few weeks and from some previous ones as well. Firstly, I spoke about walking by a church. So, so a few people wrote that there's a sikha from the Rebbe printed in volume 18, Lukutis Sikhis, page 460, He's talking about television, he compares it to a church, and the Rebbe says there that the meaning is not to walk by a church. And uh, let me see here. So how does that fit with the Rebbe's behavior itself? So you could say, first of all, maybe the Rebbe was speaking about a particular circumstance where the church did control or own the property and the street. Clearly, no Rebbe is not going to contradict himself, like I mentioned last week at length. Um and may not be appropriate, fitting to say that, as I say, in a public street, which is not anything to do with the church, it's just the church happens to be on that street. Um, so, but I wanted to add that. There's also Shvi Shal Pesach Tov Shil Lamed Hay, 1975, that the Rebbe, there was a story that people were standing on the grass of a church, and the Rebbe said, on the property of a church, that Nitzkedai Shtein 
not fitting to stand there. But that again, of course, is the property. So some, feed, some feedback, some follow-up that people wrote to me. Another thing we spoke about, and that, that was in episode 249. In episode 243, we spoke about people, someone asked about references for a natural approach to dealing, to dealing with depression. So someone wrote, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. In response to the person who was asking for a natural approach to healing depression, I would like to mention that there are physical disorders whose symptoms mimic depression and people are often misdiagnosed. Hyperparathyroidism and hypothyroidism. Hyperparathyroidism and hypothyroidism. Celiac and other types of wheat sensitivity, various allergies, deficiencies in vitamin D, calcium, B12, iron, etc. These should be ruled out first before, the, before diagnosing depression. Credit for most of this info is an article in Bina magazine. Okay, thank you for that. As always, this is not a medical form with any medical conclusions. It's just really a platform where I try to share what comes my way and things that I'm aware of from the Rebbe, Chassidus, or basic common sense between the lines. So thank you for that. But again, all these issues should always be addressed with professionals and mumchim and checked with Rabbonim to make sure it's all above board on every possible level. I always need to say that because that's the fact. That's the Tate away. In episode 155, that goes back a long way, there was a question, is it my Yetzirah or my dysfunctional childhood? I discussed that at length. How do you determine something is based on dysfunctionality? Or it's your Yetzirah, a push is something you have more choice over. So even dysfunctionality we discussed you can do things about, but it's obviously a different situation. So someone writes, look at a Yom Yom Shabbos 716. 716. It was, of course it was Tavshin Gimel. The crucial first step is to identify the location of the illness, whether it is caused by the crassness, grossness, and corruption. This is a translation of the Ayyem of his physical body or by failing in his soul powers. The person might be being inclined to, understand, to undesirable traits like arrogance or falsehood and the like, or the source of the malady may be habit, inadequate rearing or unwholesome environment having brought on bad habits. Correct. So... Thank God that, that thank you that that adds to the discussion. Thank you for that. Okay, we covered the follow up. I will now do the chassidus question and the essays. I want to add since we're talking about this, I just saw something in Tovshin Hay. Um, very interesting. It's actually I learned, I'm teaching Ayin Beis and I'm volume Ayin I'm volume two in the Maimorim about Birudim, the Kela Chukas Maimorim, those Maimorim. So the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, who cites those memorandum, actually almost quotes it, but adds to it. There's a very interesting piece that I just would be interesting if you want to look into it. It's on page 85 in Sefer Memorandum Tov Shin Hei, page 85, where he talks about, um, as well as page 84, I should say, where he talks about people's midas and how they are, how, we, how we're born with being more crass and how we get refined. He even speaks about different ages. I just thought it was quite unique. And if you're interested, look it up. It's the Maimir is a Maimir, but it's a Hemshech of early Maimorim and continues on. It's on page 8485. Okay. The Chassidus question, which in some way is also a follow-up to last week to some extent. Someone writes, or creation? What does the Tanya mean by saying that a soul is literally a piece of God? the beginning of chapter 2. And how do you explain that the soul and God are two half images, as you discussed last week? the Torah of the Baal Magid. Here's a little more breakdown of the question. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. My question for you today is as follows. It says in chapter 2 of Tanya that the neshama of every Jew is a piece of God, literally. So my question basically is, is every Jew God? For he has a piece of God within him. On the other hand, we are creations of Hashem. And we have a mitzvah to pray to him, to God, every day. So please explain this concept that every Jew has a piece of God within him. And what does this mean? So firstly, let me refer you to episode 130, where I discussed the meaning of Chelik HaLikam and Mal Mamish. Also, commentaries. And a good place to look is Tanya Muvueres, where he brings all the different interpretations in this meaning in Perik Beis. 
from the Friedrich Rebbe, there's Chelik Halekha, Mamish, Mamish, Chelik Halekha. But there's also sometimes the interpretation that Mamish is referring to Mamoshes, that it literally tangibly manifests itself in the tangible part of the person. And Chelik Halekha, Mamal, means Mamal means the more sublime and higher levels. So you have there the different commentaries. As far as this question goes, there's a big question, of course, of philosophical, theological questions. Something is a piece of God. What does that mean? God is indivisible. That we discussed in, in episode 130. There's the Shefatal on it and the Kabbalists, Kabbalists that already speak about the topic long before the time. Regarding your question, so there's an interesting expression, Exodus, that in Neshama is Elekus Shenasa Nivra. Godliness that became a Nivra. Which one is it? Elekus we know is not a Nivra. Elekus Shenasa Nivra. So from this we derive that yes, a Neshama is definitely an entity that becomes a nivra as it travels. Like we say, neshama shenasati b'teheri, it's pure. Ata barasa, you've created what? The neshama. Ata yitzarti, you've shaped it. Ata nafachtabi, you've instilled it in me. Ata meshamra b'kirbi, you protect it in within me. So as, <clears throat> as the Tanya explains, and a number of my modern explains, neshama goes through a journey, gradations. It begins in the highest level, neshama, which needs its own explanation, which I'll talk about in a moment. But then the neshama goes through layers and levels. And each level it assumes garments until it becomes a nivra. Meaning something not like a malach, something that can be instilled in a body and, and, and exist in this material world and still retain its neshama qualities. So what do we mean by that? And let's make add another question. Everything is created by God. This table, this chair, wood, stones, animals, every atom. So why do we suddenly say, and the Shama is elokus, and what, the spark, the divine elokus inside of a stone is not a part of God? The answer is that God created things in different ways. They're things that maintain and retain divine personality. And the Shama isn't just that God created it. It retained, it created it in a way that has a divine personality. Chassidus talks about Eir. Eir ain't Sof. Kamuvan, obviously, God is not Eir. God is not even a Moir. He's not a source of light. And yet, light, and God does not need to create light. That's not the primary thing of God that it gives off light. But once the light does give off, it comes as a reflection of the divine. A Kali, on the other hand, a container, or Yesh, is also created by God, but it's created in a way that does not retain divine uh, properties and divine attributes. So that's what a neshama is. Neshama is that the lakus is retained in it. It's a divine entity that retains divine qualities so it can come into this world in a body and in an animal soul, which don't have divine qualities in a revealed way, and it refines those elements to become divine. Then you reveal the etzem that's embedded in the yesh, in the guf. Yesh amiti, yesh anivre. But as far as in Giluyim goes, a neshama has the Giluyim of Elokus, but then it does Giluyim travel and come down into this world, into Anivra. So when you say, Chelik Elikam Emal Mamish, you're saying the following. Only one God, that's clear. But God, in a sense, imparted part of himself, like Atzilus is Netzal. So God imparted into a neshama. So why is that a Chelik? You can't say God has a Chelik. It's in our words to say that this is a piece, like saying something created, but God has no image. But he manifested a part of himself into the image, into the, the, the neshama, so it's a chilek, and it's mamish, mamish a piece. If it's tefes b'kuli, why do you call it mitzase or chelke? Because in giluim it's a chilek. In our language, when we look at it, it looks like a neshama in this person. But in the etzim, it connects to the core and carries over the core personalities of divine personalities to transform this world into a divine home. As far as the second part of the question, Chetzitzuris, so I refer you to Ayin Beis, volume 2, chapter, I believe, Shin Pei Dalet and on, yeah, 384 and on, the Rebbe Rashab, literally for over 700 pages, explains this Magid. And he begins by saying exactly this line. He says, but Magid says, two images. They're two 
halves of an image, think of, a, think of you have a mosaic, one image, and you cut it into half. So you need both. They complement each other. Kav yachol. The nida kavona that Rebbe Rashab says, al gili. That the intention here is not on the etzem, on the er v'gili of Einsof, and also by neshama Yisrael, as it comes revealed in the neshama. Because the etzem, you wouldn't say two halves. There's no parts. There's no image at all. So this is in giluim. They become down, and he explains it further, more in detail. Okay, that's the chesed's question, and the relevance, of course, to us is that we are not just creations. We are agents of God. We're ambassadors that carry divine powers that traveled through all the levels to come and not be part of the problem, but be part of the solution. When you're a creature, you're part of the system. So you follow the guidelines, like every animal and every season and every creature in this world follows the guidelines. But you want to transform the world, you need a divine power. And the Shema carries divine energy as a divine shliach that carries that energy into this world with the power to not just survive, not just to conform to the system, but to transform it into a home for godliness in this world. Now, let's do the Chassidus Applied Essays, three essays. This is still last year's essay contest. First is True Peace is Realistic by Yehuda Levinger, age 19, Jerusalem, Israel. Shalom Amiti Zemetsuti. So he speaks about the different conflicts that we have in our lives, and um, which seem to be conflicts that can never end. And the fact of the matter is, he identifies the problem, that it seems like there's a dichotomy. And he brings it based on Kabbalah and Chassidus that shows how you can find that unity within existence. And brings actual practical ideas that allow us implementations and actions that allow us to achieve this type of unity. And allows us to see a broader perspective where things come together under one rubric, under one unifying field. Nicely done, in Hebrew, as I said, with very good examples and bullets. And um, of ultimately creating peace even among paradoxes and differences. That's essay one. The next essay is Will and Desire by Rachel Schusterman, Atlanta, Georgia. And she writes on the topic, Will Desire. We face commitments at every turn in life. We commit to ourselves, our jobs, and our relationships. Often, once commitments are made, we are in power mode, doing whatever we can to fulfill our goal. Over 50% of the people in the United States make New Year's resolutions, and less than 8% of these people keep their resolve goes on to say that Chassidus gives direction on gaining an awareness of what our will is. So when I say I promise how to keep commitments when we become unmotivated and the benefits of enduring and following through. goes on to explain what is Ratzin, the essence of man's desire. <clears throat> it speaks about two Ratzinus, inner and outer. Identify both. And then six steps for effective follow-through with the, with the acronym HONEST. How, the H of honest, the details. Optimize the O. N is now. E, evaluate. And S, speak. S and one more, T, think. So you have five, the honest. And it's broken down in a very good structure. Very practical plan. And I like the essay a lot. And I think it could really be useful to people. Okay. Finally, the third essay for today's episode is to remain happy in conflict, Menachem Mendel Wolf, age 30, Netanya Israel, his job is a mechanech, again, again in Hebrew, and he talks about the problem that is the marriage conflict, marital conflicts, and the great shaman, how to maintain true, true love despite differences. The challenges, especially in our modern world, what is a distorted form of love and how we address it, how we confront it. And then we come to realize what is a healthy love. And a healthy love can have two different voices. And knowing how to reconcile them and taking the best of both to find the unity even within conflict. So it's a little creative, somewhat innovative approach. And uh, I think 
another very good contribution to the entire discussion on this challenging issue. So with that, we conclude My Life Exodus Applied, episode 250, 250 episodes. I welcome all your comments, your feedback on these topics and any topics. All questions will be addressed. Everyone have a simcha dike odr, odr sheni, only mylam bekedish, teva nirvanigla, true revealed joy in the fullest sense of the word, a joy that brings unity, a joy that, that gives you strength to deal with your challenges, like he says in Tanya, when you do it with joy, you have much more confidence, you have much more courage, you have much more willpower to overcome any challenge. And we should only have good news to celebrate together, and from the Gula of Purim, should go to the Gula, Mitis Vashlema, Mekorim Mamish, and each of us do our part in spreading Chassidus, and teaching Chassidus, and reaching every part of the world with Chassidus. If we're, here, we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., so have a very blessed and Simcha Dika week. Call to everybody, be well.